the global co-working and conference community, we've had our fingers on the pulse of co-working since 2012, and we've connected thousands of operators, both in person and online. On the Juicy Podcast, we talk with the people making it happen day in and day out. Let's get to it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Juicy Podcast. I have Kate Dizano with us, and she is the founder and CEO of Work Life in Australia. And Kate, first things first, how are you? Don't want to hear about your business. Want to hear about you personally. How are you? Uh, today, absolutely great. I feel like work life is, you know, it's kind of managing the, the current economic climate okay. Oh, no, no. We can't talk no, about no. work life. I want to talk about you as oh, a human. Me. How are you? Right. Okay. I am, um, I'm actually fab. I feel like I'm living my best version of my life this week. I'm all abuzz after an amazing community festival that we're a big supporter of on the weekend and well rested and yeah, like got some got some fun things in the pipeline, some good things on the to-do list. Amazing. Amazing. Okay. So now I want to hear how work life is. We have to get the human thing done first. <laughs> work life's okay. Honestly, like the small regional co-working business is a really hard thing to make work. And oh, mate, if I knew what I knew now six years ago when we started, I'd love to say I wouldn't make a different decision, but I'm in this far and constantly adapting the model and constantly shifting and changing what we're doing to make it stand on its own two legs. But the the thing that's never changed has been the the purpose and the joy. So I'm lucky that I'm, I'm never, I never not look forward to coming to work life each day. I really get a buzz out of what we're doing. I really believe in the impact we're having in the communities we are in. And yeah, and the challenge, as always, is just to make the dollars and cents stack up so I can stop stressing about money and start stressing about, yeah, people and people and projects and the and, and expansion plans. Yeah. So first of all, congratulations for surviving a global pandemic. As a small business owner, that's not a small feat. And the fact that you survived it, and I believe recently expanded, is kind of amazing. Yeah, look, to be honest, because other people running small spaces will feel like they've done something wrong that I've done done something right. The only reason we made it through is is we sold the house. Like we sold our house to make sure that the businesses survived. And wow. Super lucky to have a partner who was who was willing to go double or nothing rather than to shut the doors. And in Australia, um, some of the research that we did at Flexible Workspace Australia showed us that for the small regional spaces like me, seventy percent of them closed over COVID. So we lost an enormous amount of the um, yeah. Of economic infrastructure in regional Australia as a result of the pandemic. And now my kind of, you know, my real guiding light is to make sure that that enthusiastic new generation of people that are opening up in those towns, not you know, have learned from what we've all learned from and who now have a better chance at making these smaller spaces, yeah, work long-term and be sustainable. I love that. I love that you're so fully all in that you sold your home. That's exceptional or crazy. I'm not sure. But... <laughs> What I want to hear is like, what did you learn from that that you can teach the next generation that's coming up? I think the first thing, so my kind of background in my career was always in fundraising and sponsorship and kind of starting up community events and festivals and things like that. And so I kind of started a co-working business because I really craved the the community and the productivity that comes from mm-hmm. being in shared spaces and in community. 
And I was really burnt out from the inherent risk of trying to run uh, festivals and events which relied on sponsorship and government grants to be able to keep them afloat. And, and those kind of fundraising strategies, looking for philanthropic support, looking for government support, looking for sponsorship all of the time, you can be running the best festival in the world and you have a marketing manager change or a government change and all of a sudden the whole thing falls over. So I really wanted when I started my co-working business to have a business that did was did what it says on the box and that the customers were willing to pay and you know enough money for the service that I could make enough income to be able to live. Mm-hmm. No, you know, no real yearning to get very rich doing this, but I just wanted to be able to earn an income and do the things that I love doing. And so, uh, yeah, from the very beginning, I was very stubborn about not working in partnership with any government agencies or grants programs mm-hmm. because I saw that as a really a, re- a real place of vulnerability. And lots of the research proves that out, that government support programs don't last long enough and when they withdraw, the spaces often close. So, um, yeah, so for the next generation of people, it's I wish I could tell you that it were you were able to make a staffed co-working space at a smaller scale happen in a smaller community and have your community be willing to kind of pay enough to make that work. But we've had to get really clever about alternate income streams and diversified income. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so we've got a bar, we've got multiple sites, we hold exhibitions, we hold events, like there's lots of busy work to make a second, third and fourth yeah. income stream that makes the place hum. And one of the things that I had I had to do, other than selling the house over COVID, was go and get a, a, a job again myself to keep my team afloat. Mm. And so I started working doing for a philanthropic organisation, running a, a kind of capacity building grants program for not-for-profit groups and community groups in the bushfire-affected regions of um, the south of New mm. South Wales. And there was lots and lots of kind of community development, community planning, community strategy, which was involved in that. And so now one of the best income streams that I've got for my business is, is yeah, is, is showing up in the community and helping people facilitate conversations that matter and uh, and helping them make kind of positive plans for the future. And that's really aligned with what we're here for, but it, but it was a kind of accidental upside of having to be creative about extra income sources over COVID. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's interesting. You know, Clive is speaking at Juicy about some of the like kind of dirty little secrets of the industry. And, you know, Nick Clark from Common Desk and I spoke about that as well. It's just really, it's hard to make a living off of a co-working space. It just is. There's so much work. There's so much complexity. I always refer to it as adult daycare. It's like there's so much you have to do that it, it is really hard to make a living off of it. You know, like having a lot of alternative revenue streams is a great way to do it. I actually learned that I worked at Dell for um, at the beginning of my career and Dell taught me like constantly. It's like, what else? What else can we add? What service next? What's next? What's next? Like doubling down on service is a great way to do it. And like here in the U.S. anyways, like lots of people don't take on virtual mail because they maybe don't understand it or they think it's going to ruin their community. That's a great additional revenue stream you can add. So like some of it is just understanding what some of those extras are that you can sell. You can sell your address. Well, anyway, I know you can in the US. I don't know about Australia. 
Yeah, so yeah, there yeah, as that's, well. That's been fantastic. That's been a great um, addition for us. And uh, and again, the kind of post-COVID trends, there are lots more people who are working from home, but mm-hmm. lots of people really don't want their home address to be their business address for very good yeah, it reasons. It shouldn't be. Yeah. yeah. So it I absolutely get, shouldn't every be. time I do that, Every time I do the monthly invoices and I send those out to those people, you know, like I say a little moment of gratitude for, yeah, for just that that kind of ex- extra layer in the lasagna of um, of income streams. I would I would maybe for the purposes of of kind of being supportive to other people thinking about opening up small spaces. There's a kind of caveat to the extra income streams which I really want to make sure that I make, which is that just before COVID, I had still been doing. Kind Kind of sponsorship sales for big festivals and events, but I've been doing it from my co-working business. So it took me three years to get by the end of 2019 to two sites that were profitable and uh, uh, which were staffed and then the opportunity for me to stop doing consulting work and just focus on work life. And that was because when your brain is split into so many different places and having to do lots of different businesses, the chances of you doing those all well and not going mad at the same time is also, yeah, is pretty slim. So my goal was always to try and focus my energies and efforts on everything that fit in the work-life wheelhouse so that I was focused and present and, you know, and and sane and happy (laughs) and able to go and have a weekend (laughs) with my family on the weekends. And then kind of COVID came along and, you know, like I knew what I had to do. I had to, you know, make a few tough decisions and we closed one space in the middle of COVID. We opened another one. We, you know, I got another job and um, started an industry association. But in all of that kind of, you know, that sort of maelstrom of what was happening at that time, I always knew that the the, the goal, however many years it took again, was to get back to just focusing on work life, to be able to prune off all of the distractions and just get back to this being, being my business. And yeah, we're just uh, reopening a, th- a third space in a in a community called Picton, and it's a new model for us. It's one that we're doing in partnership with the local council. The council, Ooh. the council renovated the beautiful old heritage post office right in the middle of town. They got a grant to do that specifically for the purposes of running a tender to find an an operator of a co working business to operate it for them. So they knew that mm-hmm. councils do a really bad job of running co working spaces. Uh, They've done enough good research search to work that out and then they ran a, a, an open tender place uh, process so I was only bidding against other operators of co-working businesses which meant that the rent that I'm paying there is not really overinflated. and I have got this sort of co-marketing deal with the, um, with the council there which is an absolute joy and it's so different from the go it alone strategies and I'm hoping it's not the the kind of dependency on grants model which I was really seeking to avoid it's not I'm just I'm just an operator of a space which has got a rent, which has been, you know, reduced to the level that makes my business possible and sustainable in that location. So, yeah, so I'm kind of, I think by the time we get to 2024, I'm hoping that I will be back to where I was in 2019. I have no doubt. I have no doubt. I'm glad you do. Well, that's a lot of what I do. I'm just like a cheerleader for co-working. I'm like, you keep doing it. This is amazing. It's going to happen. Because I know what it's like being an entrepreneur, right? Nobody tells you you're doing a good job. Nobody pats you on the back. Nobody's giving you a good score. You just have to know and keep going. And it's really freaking hard. You know, it's interesting. You and one of the um, founders of Fora have a very similar background. She ran massive music events and in London and then went and started Fora. 
So that's kind of cool. And that's someone I also, I'm going to have to reach out to. That's great. Yeah, Good to yeah, know. Katrina. The other thing that I totally resonate with is, you know, I started my co-working space and then I went to a half day unconference and I was like, oh, we've got to, we've got to get everybody together. This is a thing. And then I, you know, simultaneously started Juicy while I was opening my second location. And so I ran Juicy events and my co-working business side by side for nine years. And it was, man, it was tough. There were a lot of weekends I worked really hard because I couldn't get it done during the week. Luckily now, since I sold my business, I'm able to just focus on Juicy and you know, I can't get it all done now. I don't know how I ever did both simultaneously. <laughs> I know the things but, you do when you look back on it. I look back on the COVID years and the working a, you know, four day week job and running kind of space, a couple of spaces and keeping the team kind of safe and sane. And yeah, yeah. and all of the economic stress and oh God, I, I mean, I actually, I can't, I can't believe in retrospect now that we, that we did that. I mean, that was just our generation's hard thing to do. Let's hope it's the only yeah. one. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think your concept is really interesting because you kind of went to, we here we call them kind of bedroom communities, which is a place where you can get to from a major city. And that was, I think, very strategic on your part where you're like, hey, I want to create these spaces where people who don't want to live in Sydney can still have an amazing place to work. Can you tell me a little bit about how that journey evolved? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was your kind of quintessential tree changer about 12 years ago. We left Sydney and we're looking, you know, had had a third kid in a tiny terrace house in the middle of the city and we're looking for some sort of space and and a bit of balance in our in our lives. And so we came to a little kind of tree changing community two hours south of Sydney. And as soon as I started working here, I mean, I was I was one of the founding members of a of an amazing kind of uh, series of spaces in Sydney work club. And every time I would be working at um, work club, I would be, you know, hyper productive, just my best working self. I'd come home on the days that I was um, based in our in our little regional village, and I'd go to the local cafe. I'd bang out two and a half hours work in the you know, in the window of the local cafe and kind of carefully juggle my two coffees and my avocado toast over, you know, <laughs> give my order, orders kind of carefully. And then ask a random stranger to watch everything you own while you go pee. Yeah, that's exactly right. And be so sensitive <laughs> to the fact that the lunchtime, you know, like the lunchtime crowd was coming in and there was no uh-huh. way I could keep a table for that long. I mean, I, I wasn't, I was a, I was a sensitive uh, kind of cafe squatter and I was super productive there and I loved it. I just need the energy of other people around me to focus and then I'd go home my my husband's a a builder and he built me this beautiful home office in our garden and it looked out over the horses and the chickens and the vegetable patch and anyway and I had a great internet connection like I had absolutely no excuse and I'd do donuts around the kind of dining table folding washing and I'd you know wander out into the garden start picking weeds whilst I was on the phone and anyway and then it'd be like oh the kids are nearly going to be home from the bus so maybe I'll saddle up one of the ponies and go and pick him up down the end of the lane and Aww. anyway and then tradie husband comes home at you know 3 30 in the afternoon and so everybody would be around and I'd be distracted and my working day had gotten reduced to basically three and a half hours and you just can't can't make that work I mean I was so annoyed with myself all of the time for having been so hopeless at resisting all of those distractions and I started talking about this with just local people and there were plenty of other people even 10 years ago down here who had one partner that was still commuting backwards and forwards to Sydney a couple of days a week and the other one was working locally and I found 
10 people. I said, I'll open a space and I'll do it myself if I can find 10 people to be the founding members. And so that was, and lots of those people are still with us like 12 years later. Oh, amazing. Well, as in those conversations were happening 10 years ago. We opened seven years ago and we've still got three of those original founding members still with us in our very location. So that's how it kind of came about. But the, the, thing about regional living I did it, it, you know it became I started with this idea that kind of productivity and community were my why but the more that I got involved in community life and I could see how rich and full my life was for being able to volunteer with community organizations and community events for my kids to be able to walk mm-hmm. home from school to the place I was working at um, for me to be able to be spending my money in all of the local cafes shops and grocery stores um, you know for me to be able to be home by the time you know there was still light in the sky to be able to do stuff with the family in the evening I was like I, it's not just about community and productivity. It's actually about the way that co-working spaces cement more people for longer in the daily life of a town. And when you are able to work locally like that and able to work flexibly, you know, the dads in this place are like coaching the kids' soccer teams and running, you know, and running big businesses. And people are volunteering for the local surf life saving club on the weekends and people are spending their money with the, you know, local lawyer or the local accountant rather than the big city firm. And it's just this kind of trickle sideways, trickle up, trickle down effect of the economy of a local place and the and the social infrastructure of a local place all being kind of nurtured and fertilised by the fact that a co-working business brought a knowledge economy set of workers to be fully present in their own town. So now that's my, and, and, and that's not just about the economy, that's about the fact that I just see what that effect is on those people's families and on the community organisations and there's just all mm-hmm. of this kind of rich, dense connection that happens when you have a co-working space in your regional town. Hey there, popping on to make sure you've heard our latest news. Juicy is going global again. In 2023, you'll be able to find us in the UK, Canada, and Australia. If you're ready to level up your co-working and flex space business, Juicy's the place to be. We've got top-notch speakers, amazing networking opportunities, and the best service providers in the industry. For more information about our upcoming conferences, please visit gcuc.co. See you soon. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And, you know, I'm from Texas and it, it used to be in these small towns, it was the Dairy Queen. That's where everybody met up was at the Dairy Queen. And they would just sit there and drink coffee. And, you know, that was the community hub back in the day. But not anymore. They're they're probably struggling now. But I had a funny experience when I was looking at your LinkedIn profile. Because it said something I'd never seen before. It said, you know, basically click here to see all 28 experiences. And that's like how many different things y'all she has on her LinkedIn profile. So then I was curious. So I had to peruse them. And what I drew from that list is that you're super passionate about art, community, nonprofits, giving back, and that you have an immense curiosity. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's so great because a recruiter would look at that and go this chick can't stick to anything for very long 
<laughs> no, lots of it overlapped. Lots of yes. it was like volunteer things. So those are fully acceptable. I think any recruiter would be happy to have somebody with your expertise. But I was just like, wow, this is incredible. I think I have like five, maybe. But that's that's pretty amazing. Um, that's, quite nice. that's actually lovely to hear back. Thank you, cheerleader Liz. Um, oh, you bet. Yeah. You're welcome. So tell me more about the project of investing in rural community futures, because everybody knows that listens to me. I recently got my graduate certificate in foresight. So if I see the word future, I'm going to dig in. So what was this about? So uh, there is an amazing organization in Australia called the Foundation for Rural and Regional Renewal. And it's a philanthropic organization with a specific kind of tax status, which means that it can support the the micro charities that don't Mm. have deductible gift recipient status it's kind of you know boring tax terms but it's it's the sort of it's the it's the really tiny community organizations that are the backbone and the connective tissue of regional Australia mm-hmm. and one of the things that when they did a big strategic review a few years ago that they clocked was that the sorts of things that are easily funded are things like uh you know the community hall needs a new air conditioning machine or somebody wants to put on a kind of uh, you know mm-hmm. a, a meals on wheels service or somebody wants to start a farmer's market, kind of program and infrastructure are the things that are usually really easily funded with philanthropic support. The stuff that's impossible to get funded because philanthropy is broken, and I would never have been able to say that when I was still working for that organisation, but the stuff that is so rarely funded is the human beings, the systems of organisations, the kind of Mm -hmm. strategic work that makes them sustainable. And so there was this incredible work that was done by my, that program founder, my old boss, an amazing regional woman called Ali Mudford, that really kind of, it was borrowed, I think, from a program called Built in the US, which which is a Ford Foundation mm-hmm. um, kind of program, but it was like let's invest in the in the human capital and in the strategy and in the collaborations between community organisations, because when the community sector in places is strong, then they are more resilient to disasters, and those communities are more inclusive and um, uh, and supportive and joyful places to live in. And I I read the job description in you know in the kind of in the kind of peak of COVID madness and I sent it to about which is what I do I'm like oh that's a great job somebody I know should do that I sent it to about <laughs> six people and in the course of reading it for somebody else I was like oh my god I'm so qualified for this I'm so qualified for this this is so aligned to so many mm-hmm. of my bugbears and so many of the things I've stood on a soapbox about for so long um, so yeah so I applied to do the job and after a while Ali moved on and I ended up the program manager for it and we more than doubled the amount of funds that we had kind of available to delivering it. And it was in the aftermaths of the Black Summer bushfires on the South Coast. And, and so the community organisations that I was supporting at the time as a cheerleader, as a strategic kind of advisor and, and as a kind of facilitator for them making a plan for how they were going to work together um, better and how they were going to strengthen their own organisations. They were all recovering from supporting communities through the you know horror of the bushfires and then they were all trying to adapt um, digitally um, to, um, you know, to the impacts of COVID and working remotely. So it was an unexpected and necessary um, kind of uh, economic decision to take that job, but it's changed my life in so many different ways and it's given me so many contacts and so many experiences. And now it's sort of, you know, the skills that I learned around kind of community development work and around um, strategic kind of uh, community 
community strategic plans. Um, that's the mm-hmm. sort of stuff that I really want to be able to add into the communities that we open work life in. So we've got this, you know, we work life, we're a co-working space, and then we've got a community life program. We've got a sub-brand called Community Life where we support community events and community organisations. And then we've got Social Life, which is the let's just have a drink and have some fun brand. And then on at the same time, you help start the WFA. And I'm not sure everybody knows what that is. If you can tell us a little bit more about what it is and how you guys got started. So Flexible Workspace Australia um, is Australia's industry association for the co-working and flex industry. And it was founded in COVID. A, a number of us, um, particularly um, Fiona, who was um, who is my predecessor co-chair, she had been working on an organisation, uh, Independent Co-working uh, Australia, which was basically just a chip, what are we going to do, series of Zoom calls for, <laughs> for formalised into um, formalised into a really amazing support network. I had been involved in a similar kind of, oh, my gosh, how are you coping? What the hell are we going to do? Kind of, uh, you know, weekly call Mm -hmm. um, in New South Wales with other independent regional operators. Um, Brad had been a massive kind of, you know, participator in uh, international uh, co-working and Juicy, and he kind of could see the need for an Australian outfit. And all these things kind of gradually kind of came together because everyone are great networkers and great connectors and, and yeah, and when you kind of are in the trenches, your instinct is to reach out to other people uh, rather than kind of bunker down by yourself. So uh, that's what that's how Flexible Workspace Australia started and now it's, um, yeah, it's nearly 260 different spaces across Australia which are there now. We've got a couple in New Zealand, which is cool, and specifically joined the board to make sure that I was there to represent the the particular interests, concerns and challenges for small regional operators and to make sure we had a voice at the table. And I've yeah, and I've as you saw on that LinkedIn thing, I've sat on a lot of boards and the kind of <laughs> membership organizations and it's something I yeah, it's something I know pretty well from Chambers of Commerce and National Trust work. So yeah, I knew how to I knew the kind of ins and outs of what needed to be in a constitution for a membership organization. And so I put my hand up to kind of offer that expertise into the ring and uh, yeah and I'm I mean I'm getting better at saying no as in I'm getting more I'm not getting better at saying no I'm getting better at saying yes to the things which all work in a constellation together to make sense for my energy and efforts I'm getting better at saying no to the like random curious things people ask me to do yeah I love it I love it well I'm super glad you guys did that we're super excited to be partnering with you and just so you guys know if it weren't for Kate this thing would not have come together the way it did I'm constantly on email with her being like what about this person what do you think about this and she's been so helpful so thank you so much and I just want to bottle up your energy I mean I'm like in the late afternoon in Austin Texas and it's like a thousand degrees out and Kate it's the first thing like early morning in Australia. (laughs) It's like the dichotomy of energy levels here is hilarious because I'm completely chill winding down and she is just a bundle of energy. I love it so much. Okay. So Kate, quickly take me back to where you were when you were 12 years old. 12 years old, I was living in a bushside suburb in Sydney. And, uh, mm-hmm. and actually oh, 12 is a tough year. 12 is a year that my, uh, I, you know, started high school and, and my parents split up and I, I went from being a kind of a very good student to a very, very big rebel runaway teen in the space of about, yeah, 18 months. So, yeah, mate, I don't want to go back to 12. It was um, it okay, was, it was but you know, it's yeah. 
eerily similar. A, we don't go to high school that early. Mm. And B, um, mine broke up when I was nine. And so, yeah, but then when I was in high school, I did like the first two years of high school, Angel. The last two, Bad Girl. Bad (sighs) Girl. So I, I hear you, but the reason I managed I bring to this pull up, myself together by the end of it. Too. Yeah, me like, too. Me right. too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but so if you go back and tell that twelve-year-old something, what would you tell her? That she really, really, really should chase that dream of getting into politics one day. Maybe that's mm. what I would tell her. That's what I'd tell her, and and I'd also tell her that the that the friendships and the relationships that she made at that stage, they were still going to be the people walking like right alongside her. Uh, you know, all raising kids together, all going on family holidays. You know, when you're young and you don't necessarily trust mm-hmm. the, the people that you're meeting and the friends that you make. I, yeah, I'd love to have been able to tell myself that those people were still, they were, they were yeah, the they, most they're people matter. I was going to meet. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they're really going to matter. So, yeah, so that was, um, oh, that was fun. the outside of that. <laughs> I like it. Okay. And, the, and, and then... that you'd always still like dancing until three o'clock in the morning, even when you're middle-aged. <laughs> Same. Somebody's asked um, Stormy, who's worked with me for a lot of years, and they we were at a dinner and they were saying, I saw them looking over at me and I was like, what were y'all talking about? And she's like, oh, he was just saying he would have loved to seen you out in the club. And I was explaining that I've seen you out in plenty of clubs. And I'm like, oh, yeah, no problem. Like, I still like going out. Um, okay, so what's one question I should have asked you that I didn't? Oh, yeah, maybe it's, I mean, you're so optimistic. And yeah, so maybe maybe it's like maybe it's around whether or not the the optimism is is foolhardy. Like, how do you balance the optimism mm. with the with the pragmatics of it? Because I love I'm that, really, and I'm looking forward to hearing your answer. Uh, I'm always really um I'm I'm loath to make uh you know because I am curious and energetic and passionate about this I I know that when I see other curious energetic and passionate people and I'm having a tough time making this business work sometimes it feels like you know there's something that something I'm not doing right and so I just always want to be really frank and upfront that even if Mm -hmm. it looks like I'm having a great time it's like it's just bloody hard to make this work and I'm stubborn and determined and I've got a partner that you know that backed my vision and and I still yeah I think we still out of there it's like oh my gosh if I knew what I knew now you know would I have begun this journey and I and I would, would for the I would for the relationships and the joy but the opportunity cost for having spent the prime you know seven years of my life um mm-hmm. going backwards economically rather than forwards you know that's a that's something that you can only do with a bit behind you already and with a supportive kind of partner so I don't want to create a sense of false optimism because mm-hmm. yeah I but like this is this is important the work that we do the impact we have on communities are real working out the funding model that makes them sustainable is still a kind of open question and community and connection with other founders and other people who are further down the journey is what will stop you from making you know silly and expensive mistakes mm-hmm. and so and so my yeah my my question that I want you to ask me so that I can say it really loud and proud is if you're in the business of selling community be part of the community like be part of the community of other founders go to Juicy go to the conferences show up in places get involved in the committees of your industry association get involved in your local chambers like lobby and advocate with your governments about the impact that we're having like put your head up don't stick your head down when it's hard (laughs) wow like I'm gonna end on that because that is 
perfection. Because yeah, and I mean, that's the thing we get up and we stay on stage at Juicy every single GC that we do, and we've done over 40 now, is we get up there and we say, hey, you guys are collaborators, you're not competitors. And yeah, if if you're not, if you're a community leader and you're not in the community, you are missing out huge. Like I always say, I'm so lucky because I can go anywhere in the world and tap into my local co-working community. And, you know, I can pop in and be like, hey, where do I get tacos in this town? You know, and somebody's gonna gonna have a solution for me. And so so yeah, it's it's super important to be part of the community and to help the next generation. And yeah, together we can we can do it. And it is hard doing it on your own. Don't do it alone. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you, well, Kate. This has been amazing. Oh, well, we love, love having you. I love having you. <laughs> and um sadly i won't be a juicy australia the storm is coming to australia she's going to be handling it and um i will very much look forward to meeting you soon and um, hopefully in london or maybe you'll come over to the u.s one or the next time we're in australia but thank you so much for your time your energy and your commitment to the community thanks liz that's awesome i've really enjoyed it <laughs> take care y'all and we'll see you on the next juicy podcast podcast.